This is Convo by Design, and today you are going to hear from the Fab Four of architecture. A bold statement, right? I stand by it. I'm calling these four the Fab Four of architecture for the amount of respect I have for them and the body of work they've completed, both individually and as partners and studio heads at Robert A.M. Stern Architects. Gary Brewer has been with Ramsa since 1989, Randy Carell since 1983, Grant Morani 1984, and Roger Schiefter uh, started with Ramsa in 1978 and became a partner in 1989. You don't find tenure like this anymore for a number of reasons, including, and probably most importantly, there don't seem to be as many legacy firms. The business has changed. All businesses have changed in that regard. Movement from one firm to another is largely based on the principles of upward professional mobility. And because there is an acceptance to the movement, you see it more and more. But back to the conversation at hand. I spoke with Roger, Gary, Grant, and Randy via Zoom. I would have preferred in person, but we were right in the middle of the pandemic, which made that impossible. I do look forward to a time when we can sit down in, in, you know, in person, face-to-face, and go over some of their work in greater detail. They were all joining in to discuss their new book, Houses, which covers, as its name suggests, covers some of the firm's residential projects. What struck me was not the opulence and grandeur of each project, kind of to the contrary, but the elegant comfort of each project being showcased. Being a tactile person that I am, I love the feel of pages in a book and magazines. I anticipate every turn of the page because I'm really excited to see the next project and learn about the ideas that, that, that went into it, the thoughts and inspiration that got these creators to the finished project. There's an elegance. There is an opulence. But more than that, you find a place for everything and everything in its place and not a single opportunity missed to make a statement. Sometimes subtle, sometimes grand, but always present. You're going to hear about the work, their processes, inspiration and challenges. Four architects, one book, over 110 years of experience at one spectacular architecture firm. You don't want to miss this. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, why? Seriously, please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts, and now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture, so make sure to check that out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. What a good group we are. Look at this. <laughs> you really are. I love it. It's not like you guys have been working together for a while or anything. Oh, no, no. <laughs> you know, this is, yeah, I'm going to, um, Grant, trust me, I'm going to get to that. But before I get to the book, um, I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, um, sort of like the origin story, right? Like, how did you guys all come together? I think it's really interesting with, with this firm, how you, you each have, you know, your, your studio that you run. Um, it, it's almost like, and I'm, I'm curious, I'm more asking, it feels to me like it's a, like it's a, an individual sport within a team concept. Um, 
and every firm, design, architecture, business, you name is, it. Is anyone else every, having trouble with the audio? I'm not. See, I love it. Our first, our first glitch, and it's perfect. I'm going to keep it the way it is. Um, I was just curious, though, as far as the um, the firm goes, and how how you each run your your individual businesses within within the the firm. How does it work? Uh, you know, Grant, I'll I'll start with you. And Grant is frozen. So, Roger, I'm going to start with you. Um, how do we run it? Um, so you're asking me, how, are you asking us how we run it or how do we get there? You, you know what, Roger, it's so funny. Forgive me. This is actually the best place to start. If, um, if I had asked a designer that same question, yes. they would have picked what they wanted, how they wanted to answer it and gone from there. The, the architect says, wait a minute, how, what did you mean exactly by that? And I, and I love that. I do. Um, Here's the point, you have, you have four distinct individuals who have been working together for quite some time at, at, a, at a firm that is, has, has done and continues to do world-class work. Part of a, the success of a firm, it's not just the work itself, but it's the structure um, and the business model behind the work that leads to how, how everything gets done, how it's viewed. Um, how it's perceived. So I guess from that perspective, you know, the firm itself, how you all came together um, to run your individual studios and, and how, you, how you both work together as well as individually within the right. firm to produce the work that the firm produces. Okay. Well, we've, we've, we've all been there a long time, as you suggest. And I guess I have probably been there the longest of the four, but who's counting. And the studio system that we have now has actually evolved over the years. I mean, when I started in the firm, there were three people in, at Ramza. Uh, and when each, you know, when, when Grant and Randy and, and Gary started, there were fewer, way fewer people than there are now. Um, so I, I, I think we sort of, and, and originally we, would work on projects as they came in and we were available to take them on. And it was all one big office with very little structure and very little organization. Uh, and uh, at one point, at a point in time, more than 20 years ago now, we decided that, you know, aside from making architecture that would last for the ages, we also wanted to make money, at least enough money to stay in business. And uh, one way to achieve that was by organizing ourselves into these studios, which almost by default are sort of market centric. Uh, e each one specializing to some extent in a certain kind of building. Um, some of them do more than one kind of building, uh, but uh, the four of us work largely on private residential work. And um, some of us, uh, Grant and, and Gary in particular, work more on non-private residential work than Randy and I do. But you know, even we have gone beyond our, our borders. I, I, if I could jump in, you know, Bob Stern always gave at least the four of us and, and others in the firm early on, like huge amount of responsibility you know we, we could do as much as we could handle um, so you know even in my early years in the 1980s just out of school you know I sometimes worked for Roger and then worked for Bob but had a huge amount of independence and uh, you know now that we're a bigger firm that isn't true for the younger right. people you know it, it takes a long time for them to really take on a, the amount of responsibility that, that we were all given right from yeah. the get-go. Yeah, it was very much sink or swim for us. I mean, you know, we were thrown into these big pools and, you know, and, and they would see if we could actually do it and we did manage to do it. 
of course, life was a lot less litigious back then. And I think we were more prone to take risks like that than we are now. I, I think that that's really, that's really interesting. You know, Grant, um, your, your thoughts on that. And did you feel this, the same way when you came in? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I, I just to, to, to continue the discussion a little bit further, I think one of the things that happened, you know, 20 plus years ago was when Bob uh, ended up at uh, running the School of Architecture at Yale. I mean, that changed the whole yeah. way the office ran. And we had a lot more responsibility because he wasn't there. We had to take the mantle and, and, and deal with these issues. And I think that that really did foster the studio system in a way which in hindsight was very good. And yeah. so I'd just like to add that to, to the discussion. Gary, and thoughts? Sorry, sorry. So the other thing is I, I lost connection when you started your initial question. So I coming into this, um, so I didn't hear all of your question. I don't want to ask you to repeat it. So maybe uh, Gary can jump in here because he can answer the question. Josh, what, what was your question to me? That's a great, that's, a, that's the perfect response. Moving on. Um, <laughs> Josh, meet Gary. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. Um, I, I think, you know, where I'm going with this is in, in sort of my background, I am neither an architect nor a designer. I'm an enthusiast. Um, that's how I got here. I love, I, I love the stories. If I had the, if I had the skill or the talent to do design or architecture, that's what I would be doing. Um, absolutely love it. So when I had a chance to do my second career, the one for passion, the one that I loved, the one that I wanted to follow, this is what I wanted to talk about. And I've spoken to a number of individuals. I've spoken to a number of, of you know, presidents of firms. Every company is built differently and not everyone succeeds. And what's really interesting and striking to me about the way that Ramsa was sort of modified to run as a, as a world-class architecture firm is how it, the studio was, the studio system was set up to you, for you to run your individual silos to, to run as a group. And I, I wanted to start, actually, before we get to the work, I wanted to start with the business. I wanted to start with sort of how this worked for you. And, you know, Roger, you mentioned that when you started this, you had more free reign and, you know, we were in a, in a far less litigious society. And I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, you're not, you're futurist, you know, you're not designing something for today or tomorrow necessarily, but for 50, 75, 100, 200 years. And with that comes a great deal of responsibility. And I'm trying to put myself in, in your, in your head as you're starting the business in the 80s, you know, you're coming out of school and you're, you're starting to do the work and someone says, hey, listen, you can go as fast as you want. You know, how much work can you get done? The, the quality has to, has to be maintained. And now it's a, it's a creative and an endurance effort. And I'm just curious. So Gary, that's where I was going with it. And I'm just curious, sort of from then to now, because the next thing I want to talk about is sort of the today that we're talking about today is far different than to the today we were talking about in December of 2019. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm interested to hear you talk about projects as planning the future. And this may be a little bit off topic, but I think that one of the things that we and the house partners at Ramza work on with houses is everybody thinks of houses as you know making nice rooms and nice floor plans but working with house clients you know you're really getting to know them and you're really helping them to communicate with us what their plans are for the future i mean we you know we work with young couples with young kids and i think randy is now working on a project with somebody who's 80 years old and so it's, it's all about communication because it's helping a client to decide what do they need and how are they going to live and how does it affect their house plans um, for the future. I'm curious, that being said, 
how has, and it's funny because at some point we're going to stop talking about 2020, right? We're going to, when we get through the pandemic, we're going to stop talking about it until the time comes again to start looking at it again. I mean, you know, if you think about it, after the, after the Spanish flu, architecture and des design changed dramatically, you know, and it, it gave way to, to the ideas, Corbusier, you know, in the, in the 1920s, talking about clean and, and hygienic in architecture and design, something that, that hadn't really been explored. And I, and I, I feel like we're, we're on the precipice of that again. And I'm curious if the past 12 months have changed the manner in which you, each individually and the firm as a whole, think about design and think about, um, has it changed the way you think about the work? The long I, pause here. I, I would say no. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting though that our you know clients that we have are now living in these houses that often were just meant to be um, summer houses, uh, you know, seasonal houses, and they've now been there for the last ten months. And it's interesting to see how they look at looking at things differently, you know, and what things they need to do or want to do to make the house uh, more like a, a year-round house and not just a seasonal house. Yeah, for a single-family house, I agree with Gary, with Randy totally on this. For a single-family house, it really hasn't had any real implications at all. Yeah, but if you have light and ventilation, fresh air, you're fine, as long as you don't come, come in contact with other people. When you get into an apartment building in an apartment, you're fine as well. There's not really a big issue there. It's the common spaces in the apartment buildings. And as you move out into the city spaces, the open spaces, that's when it becomes an issue. And it does affect office buildings and any other place where, you know, theaters, anywhere people congregate. So that's a totally different thing. But in a single family house, it's at the moment, it's not an issue that affects us in our design as, as far as I can see at this point. Well, actually, I can, I can see it a little differently um, insofar as, and this aligns in a way with what Randy was saying, that I think our clients see their houses differently from the way they did before. Um, and not just the summer houses, but anywhere where they live, uh, they're all working from home, whether it's their second home or their third home or, or, or their primary apartment. So that workplace, that office, that home office is very important to them now. And the degree of separation or separability from the rest of the houses is important as well. Um, I've been speaking with uh, one of our old clients who may start a new project. And uh, one of the reasons it, it may well start is that he, he's based in the city and he gets stir crazy and he wants to be able to get away in pandemic mode, but also afterwards to a place that's nearby, not the Hamptons. Um, so he wants to build a house, you know, possibly in Westchester, uh, which will have all the bells and whistles that he would typically have in and around his house, like the gym and the, you know, tennis court, the swimming pool and all that stuff that he may go outside his apartment for, but now he wants it around at, at, at hand. Um, and I think those concerns are pretty far reaching amongst our clients. I, I would also add to what Roger is saying is that, you know, beyond working from home, everybody's realizing that they don't necessarily have to be in an office every single day. And not only are our clients working from home, but depending on the age of our clients, many of their children are doing school from home. And I'm working just starting up with a client who is coming to the realization that they don't necessarily have to live in New York. Um, they can live in Connecticut and they are able to do work in, um, in New York or do work in Boston in a way that pre COVID 
people just thought, well, I have to, I'm working in New York, so I have to be in New York. So I think it's for new clients, it, and even the clients as Grant and Randy say, who are now living in their second houses as a primary residence, I think it's having our clients rethink where they're living and how they live in their houses in comparison to uh, what it was like before this. Yeah. I think our New York clients are going to become less New York centric, you know, that the, the apartment in Manhattan is may become more a piano terre than the primary residence as, yeah. as we go forward. I, I think it's interesting too, you know, as, as we have this conversation and I, and I realize, you know, the, the ideas are New York centric and you're, you're sort of coming from this New York outward perspective. Um, living in Los Angeles, I, I have a very different view. You know, I think, I think New Yorkers, really interesting. I think anyone who lives in a major metropolitan city uh, gets used to all of the, all of the comforts and trappings and, and everything that comes with vertical living and living very close uh, to one another. And I think, you know, where I'm, where I'm going with this is I'm, I want to get to the book in a minute. And, and I think the title houses is, is just perfect because I feel as though we are on the precipice of something, an, an absolute Renaissance in residential architecture. And I, and I feel that way because, you know, like Grant, you mentioned, as long as you have clean water and air and you know there are certain things that go along with with very basic quality of life that you have the things you need and I would take that one step further you know to the points that you're all making where you don't have to be New York centric anymore you to, to take that one step further someone could be living in Paris France or Texas and still do the same amount of business that they were doing before so you actually we we actually have Due to technolo technological advances, we have the opportunity to live anywhere, which means you can do more with a residential structure than I feel like you could have ever done since the, since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, now you don't have to be in the major cities. But with that, it goes back to sort of the original idea I was throwing out to you guys about architects as futurists. And how do you predict how we're going to be living in 75, 100 years from now, because that's what you're designing for. And I, I think, you know, if we were having this conversation in January of 2019, it would be a very different conversation. So I think to, to that point, you know, and maybe transitioning to some of your favorite projects from the book and sort of how they, how they adapt to, to current, to the current situation and how they look in the, in the future. And would you design them the same way? And is there anything that you would change? I think to what Roger spoke to in terms of home office and the like, well, how, what people's expectations are of, of separation of work and, and uh, daily life is that, that that will change things to a certain degree. I don't know if it's going to make a fundamental change, but certainly we'll, we'll have to be accommodated as, as, as we, we move forward. I'm designing a house now in Hong Kong, and the question hasn't come up apart from the normal uh, issue of, of uh, I need a home office, I need this, I need that, but it hasn't been anything very different from what at least I've encountered uh, over the years. Uh, yes, the home office may be a little bit bigger. Yes, there may be two of them, one for him and one for her. And yes, there may be an additional family room for the kids so they can separate uh, more than what they probably do now. And the only other thing I can think of is in, in terms of the separation of incoming goods into the house. So whether you groceries or, or whatnot, whether or not you have to perhaps have a defumigation area in the future to take care of that. Uh, um, so, I mean, those things, but they're relatively minor, at least in, in my experience to, to date. I don't know, uh, Randy, Gary, Roger. Well, I, th I, th I agree with you, actually, because I, I don't think that the, um, the programmatic changes coming out of pan uh, the pandemic are going to be 
quite so earth shattering. I think people still want the same things in their houses, but maybe more more zoning, you know, uh, a bit more separation of functions than was there in the past. And I hope actually that that open plan planning that seems to be so popular goes away uh, a lot. Uh, and and you know maybe we were ahead of the game to the extent that our houses were already doing that. Um, you know, achieving all that separate zoning, separate but not so separate, and uh, satisfying all these different functions and giving our, our, our clients, you know, great places to work. I mean, I think that, you know, most of our residential projects are sort of self-contained little worlds. And um, I think they should continue to be that. I had a, a fun to your question. <laughs> I had an email from one of my clients who's in the book, one of the East Hampton houses, and you know she was saying that she they they live uh, far away most of the year, but they spend the summers in East Hampton. And uh, she said uh, that they've been in the house for nine months or whatever, and the only change that she found was necessary was she had to buy a. a tablecloth for the breakfast room table. I would also add to that is, you know, what we're all living through is a, you know, a once in a lifetime event. And I think that there might be a tendency to say, it's going to change the world in every which way and nothing is going to be the same. But I've been also been wondering, I mean, we've all lived through 9-11 and we, you know, which was in some ways, especially for New Yorkers was, you know, as affecting. And we heard all kinds of predictions that nobody was gonna live in New York City. Nobody was gonna live in, you know, or work in office buildings. You know, nobody was going to take the subway. And it was an awful event, but five or six years later, many of those predictions didn't really come true. So I just sort of wonder if we're living through a very similar phase and that, you know, all the things that we think are gonna change in the world, sure, some things will change, but, you know, we all live in many ways the way that our grandparents lived. Well, to That's keep funny, Bob's Gary, uh, point too, I, mean, I think that is a, a good analogy, you know, between, uh, 9-11 and now, you know, after 9-11, it was said nobody would live, wanted to live in a high-rise building anymore. And, you know, now we're seeing these super tall uh, apartment houses go up in Manhattan. Uh, it, it seems that would have been unthinkable maybe even 10 years ago that anybody would want to live that way. I think it's really interesting. I, I love your perspectives. I, I really do. And it's, it's interesting for me too, because, you know, I, I would equate, you know, I'm in LA, right? So I, I don't have the 9-11 experience. I've got earthquake experience, um, for sure. I've got, um, you know, I, I've got riot experience and, uh, and fire and flood season experience. And I, I, can, I can only equate those in a small way. Uh, to what 9-11 must have been like, because I imagine that was just everything that I mentioned combined into one central event that affected a much smaller geographic area with far more people. So I can only imagine what that was like. Um, <laughs> that being said, I, I wanna sort of touch on the, on the other side of that a little bit. And I wanna jump to the, to the book in one second, because I think that what we're really talking about here is how how the architecture serves those who reside in it, right? And this is something that you have to take into account when you're when you're looking at style, when you're looking at form, when you're looking at function, when you're looking at site, and you know, back to Grant's point about clean water and air, and you know, even now we have to, you know, I feel like the issue of the day is separation so that people can stay healthy, which is, which is one aspect. Um, but also, you know, trying to do business when there's a lawnmower or there's a dog, 
these are the small things, right? But I think it all combines to the to, to the functionality of of how a home works. And I jumping to the book. By the way, I think the title. Just out of curiosity, because I'm big on titles, right? I think you know that's what you're throwing out there for you guys to go so ultra simple with just houses. I mean, who came up with the title? And was there was there an instinct? Was there a desire at first to 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 complicate it a little bit more, or who decided? You know what? We're just going to call it houses because that's what it is. Okay, we had about the title. Yeah, we had about twenty different tiles we were playing around with and and Bob's uh, you know one of the best things one of the things he's very good at he knows how to edit and he edited it down to one word but I think we all like the idea of houses in the title but we had three or four words I can't even remember what they were in the title but, but remember is- he also had that more complicated title that he was going to use for his memoir about <laughs> memory and history or something right well, the, 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 the thing that's interesting about the title is, you know, Designs for Living was one of the first Ramza monographs that had a longer, more descriptive name. And, you know, we found that many people who were putting monographs out after us took that idea and, you know, carried it forward sometimes to funny extremes. And I think that the idea for houses was coming back to a more simple idea, you know, that was more direct. Um, I think Randy was one of the people who really felt strongly that that was a good title. And I think that beyond Bob, we all kind of liked the simplicity of it. And it bobs forward. I, as I, mean, I recalled, go on, Randy. I was going to say we looked at the graphics, as I recall, too, for the cover, and we like tested a couple of titles, and we we all like how simple uh, the graphics were with uh, what we ran it up. Right. It also made perfect sense after, I mean, Designs for Living, I think was also a great title, you know, cause it brought, uh, you know, the evocations of Noel Coward and everything into it. It was just, was us very much so. And it suited the designs in the book and it was a hard act to follow. So it was best to follow it with something so simple. How did you go about the process of, of putting this book together? And I asked the question because I, I love books. I, I love design books. I could, you know, the tactile experience of going through and the delight and surprise of turning every page and, and seeing the projects and then being, being able to sort of dig into them a little bit. So I'm curious about the process of putting it together. I know you each are represented with projects in this. Did you put these together, the presentation of each individually, um, or was there sort of a centralized theme that was that was given to you? Um, so you got to, you know, project selection was one thing, but then the presentation of the project was individual. I, I'm just curious because, you know, I've never met two architects or two creators of any type that are exactly like one another. So I imagine that you each have, it, it's back to that um, individual sport within a team concept idea. Um, so in, in putting this book together, were you each able to sort of put your put your own stamp, your own fingerprint on this? Um, Roger, I'll start with you. Um, yes and no. Um, I think we, we may have put more of our individual stamp in the in the texts and we did in the format um, I think that there's a way of presenting projects that transcends all the studios in our office um, generally as we present any project whether it's a house or something else or a larger building we walk the viewer through the project um, and so that the images make sense uh, when you refer back to the plan. And I think that's where we start from. And we started that way with each of these as we were formatting. Um, and the formatting, by the way, was, was basically undertaken in groups of two. So 
Randy and I, for example, would meet with the editors to go over the formats of each of our projects so that we could check that they talk to each other. Randy's projects talk to my projects and vice versa, that they didn't look like they were coming from different planets uh, in terms of layout. And Gary and Grant did the same thing. And uh, that's essentially how we spent most of last year. Was it because, this is a stupid question, but I, you know, I ask stupid questions all the time because sometimes I'm just curious why, and I was gonna start with, is it because Roger and Randy start with R and Grant and Gary start with G? Is there a reason? It was random. <laughs> no, that was, I think it was random. Or maybe our, our schedules worked, <laughs> worked out that way. Never thought I, of that before. I never thought of that either. <laughs> Well, I mean, I see the similarity and, and I was going to actually go a little bit deeper. And I was curious if, if you were paired specifically at random or because there are certain through lines in the work or in your ideas or in your approach that, that would make those pairings a little bit more cohesive. I think it may have been, I mean, this is in retrospect, but it may well have been because Randy and I have more projects in the book than Grant or Gary. So we were looking at more projects collectively. Great, Gary, how do you feel about what do you, that? I, what do you all think? <laughs> well, I think that's, you're going, Gary. Ted, my two cents is that, I, I think that we're focusing on the differences between the four of us. It's, you know, sort of like the Beatles. I mean, everybody said that, you know, Paul was different than John, but we've all been in the office for a long time. And we're all in the habit of putting out these monographs. So it isn't our first monograph. And we're all really used to presenting information on projects in a logical way. And so I think that between the four of us, you know, there are differences among each of us, but in a way we're, you know, having been in the office for 25 years together, um, it's a little bit like saying it's the cult of Ramza. You know, there are many things that we all agree on and have done things in the same way for many years that make collaborating on a project like this with three other partners easier than it might be for, you know, for other people. I, I think an important point that should be made is that houses books are made other office books, when designs for living, the four of us got together and said, you know, we wanted to have a book, not Bob Stern's book, and we embarked on it, uh, you know, doing it that way, and uh, in, in having a writer come in and, you know, work with us to write the text for each of the projects, and we, the four of us, with the editors worked together you know, to put the book together. And, and we repeated that process uh, this time because we thought it was successful and it made for a nice book. Uh, you know, the other monographs are almost solely, you know, Bob Stern and the editors. The, the other partners have little uh, involvement uh, in them. So I think that makes these books kind of more special within the, uh, within the office. They have more more personality probably than our other uh, the books on, on on the work in our office. You really get a sense of the um, of the individual architects that are for each of the houses. Really really get... For the you know the clients like to the house clients uh, really want to feel that they're dealing with individual uh, and not you know, it's your person office. So this helps to identify, you know, and, and the color personality of the different partners involved in the work. Um, I'm curious, when it comes to the storytelling, so you're working with writers, do you struggle at all, or is it easy for you individually or as a group to, to you're working with somebody else who's putting your designs into text. Um, and the, the purpose of, of writing the book, I, I'm gonna assume for, for, for everyone, that the purpose of writing the book is to create a user experience. Um, 
for the person who picks up the book and goes through it for for the purposes behind it, you know, as to what you hope that each user gains from the book is the same way that you look at, you know, someone who who is living in the homes that you design. Um, what they what they get out of it is is often very different, but the the idea is always the same to 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 add to this experience. So when working with a writer, I always find it fascinating because I could imagine how it might be really, really frustrating for you to go through that process where you're trying to to get someone else who did not do the design themselves, who is not an architect, to put your home into words to sort of give the context behind the images. And I'm, and I'm curious how that experience was for each one of you. We all edited the text. We had a, a liberal uh, opportunity to uh, edit the text as we thought best to suit uh, the design intent. And also the personality, as I mentioned before, the personality of the house and the personality of uh, us as architects and also our, as Granny was talking about our, our clients. I mean, it's, it's got a lot to do with our clients. We wanted our personality of our clients to come through as well. I mean, the text shouldn't be academic. It should be a, a good read, easily understandable, but at the same time, be very serious about the design, uh, the integrity of the design itself. So with that, um, I wanted to sort of go through a, a project for, for each of you um, in the book. And, I, and I'm gonna start with Roger because it's you know, near and dear to my heart is, is the, the house in Southern California. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that house um, was originally designed by John Wolf, John Elgin Wolf in 1959, 1960. Um, and it was designed originally for the actress uh, Eleanor Parker, who was the Baroness in The Sound of Music, among other things. And uh, uh, our client, for whom we've done a number of projects, is based on the East, East Coast, uh, and has a lot of business on the West Coast and simply got tired of staying in hotels, decided at one point, I, I need a place to live. Uh, so, he and a realtor looked at a number of properties in the LA area. He narrowed it down to whatever, five or six different projects. And then he asked me to go out and meet with his realtor and look at the same properties, which I did in one day and walked into this house and thought, oh my God, I wouldn't change a thing. It, it was just this fabulous butterfly plan, 5,000 square foot house. It was like an apartment, like a great, great apartment on its like with a nice view um, and uh, uh, told him he should buy it. He thought the same thing, they bought it. The idea was just to tweak it, uh, make it livable for him and his wife on occasion. And at the end of the day, we had <laughs> essentially, you know, torn out all the finishes to the studs, rebuilt it completely, but essentially kept the plan because the plan worked so well. Uh, and the proportions, which were key in an Elgin, in a John Wolfe house, uh, but freshened it up, lightened it up, uh, and kept it, we think, true to its mid-century uh, soul. We also unearthed, it was interesting because we unearthed a few um, uh, parts of the design that had been hidden uh, in, in the course of Wolfe's original uh, construction. Uh, for example, there was, we found this drawing, we worked with John Gilmer, who used to work in our office, and he's, he was the interior designer on the project. Um, and he had access to the Wolf archives, I think at Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. Uh, and we, so we found some original drawings of the house, not working drawings, but just architect's drawings, including a sketch of the living room which had an exposed beam ceiling and a fireplace, none, neither of which were in the house when we came there. And our client, who she gets very involved in these, in these projects, uh, said, oh my God, we gotta get rid of the ceiling and open up the fireplace, which we did. 
Um, we also exposed this rubble stone wall around the fireplace wall, which was horrible. So we covered it up as quickly as we uncovered it. Uh, but uh, it, the house had some surprises like that in the course of the construction. And so we, we feel we gave it even more character than it had uh, when we first came to it. I love that idea, by the way, of walking in saying, I wouldn't change a thing and then going down to the studs. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just, that often it's happens in renovations. Yeah, hindsight is a wonderful, is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, I, the, the only follow-up I, I have to that is the responsibility on your part at, that you take to, you know, here in Southern California, probably more so than anywhere else that I'm aware of is the, the um, destruction of classics w without, without any real sense of responsibility. It happened recently with the, with the Gabor home, with the Gabor house. Um, your idea of this, how, how to, I, I don't want to call it protect, this Hollywood Regency, this original Hollywood Regency meets mid-century modern home. But mm -hmm. as you approached it, what goes through your mind where you say, you know what, this is an this is an impactful work. This is this is it's iconic. Um, it's important. It, it, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe it's not important to you. Maybe it's like, you know what, I'm going to put my own my own spin on it. But where do you right. start with that? Well, in that in, in in the case of that house, we're actually sort of fortunate insofar as the um, the main the principal formal rooms of the house had really not been changed and didn't need to be changed. In addition to the exterior of the house uh, from 1960, uh, they really did need restoration. Aside from all the super, the infrastructure work that we had to do for them, what had been uh, completely renovated since the house was built were, were the wet rooms. So the kitchen, the bathrooms, and who knows what they looked like originally. Uh, but what we saw were essentially 1980s or 1990s, fairly uh, awful, you know, rich people's bathrooms and kitchens uh, that we couldn't wait to tear out and, and replace with uh, new rooms that obviously we didn't want to recreate what was done back then because it wouldn't serve today's functions, but we wanted it to be sympathetic with the architecture. From Southern California, going to the Park Avenue penthouse in the book. So Gary, um, this, this is, this is, you're the, you're the partner in charge of this project. Um, why was it, why was this one selected? And um, tell me about it a little bit. Well, the, that project is a second project that I did with the same client. And that seems to be a theme um, in the residential world of Ramza is that we end up with the opportunity of working with clients more than once. And so our client had just finished up a house in East Quag that was in Designs for Living. And we worked with Stephen Gambrell, who is an incredibly talented interior designer. Um, who's also trained as an architect. And I always think that the best architects think like interior designers and interior designers think like architects. So when our client bought the apartment at 778 Park, she came back to us and she said, you know, I just went through a, all the effort it takes to do the house, you know, out in the Hamptons. And I was thinking that I would just buy a turnkey apartment in the city but she found that apartment and it needed a fair amount of work. And it was interesting because she came to us and said, you know, I already have what she thinks is one of the best Ramza houses, which is her sort of summer, you know, house. She said, in the city, I wanna live differently. So can you help me imagine what that might be? And I think that between the conversation with us and her and Stephen Gambrell, you know, we came up with something that was distinctly different than what you might expect Ramza to do, um, you know, in a country house or a summer house. Is that something that is prevalent in your thought process? Um, and it may sound counterintuitive, I'm just curious, uh, that when you're working on design, you're looking 
for something that is different than the quote unquote typical Ramsa design? Well, I, I think so. I mean, I, there's a difference between working on a summer house and working on an apartment in the city. And I remember Randy once um, said to us that many times he will have clients come to him and say, I love this house that you did. I want you to do another one like that. And I think Randy's response, I'm paraphrasing him, was he goes with that idea because he knows that when you work through the design of a house or an apartment with a client, it changes. And you know they bring in their perspective and interior designers and the landscape. So it's, you know, they every house, there's a there's an overall high level of quality, I think, for the Ramsa houses but every house kind of reflects the place where it's built, the client and their family and the designers. So yes, I mean, I, th I think to answer your question is that every project we do is drawing on not only the past Ramsa projects and our understanding of the history of architecture um, and residential design, um, but on what can be new and what can we bring to a project to Freshen it up, so to speak. Jumping over to uh, to Randy. By the way, this particular house. Now, this is the title: the house on Lily Pond Lane. I mean, I just I get my I get the the internal idea of what that house probably looks like. I love <laughs> the naming for it. I think every project should have a name like that. Um, but this one. Tell, tell me about tell me about this one. Tell me about the origin and what you did with it. Well, I mean, to start with Lily Pond Lane, I liked having that in the title because I mean, it's one of I don't know if you've ever had you know been to East Hampton or, or been down that street, but I think it's one of the prettiest streets in America uh, for sure. Um, and I have. Well, Roger and I both had done a number of projects on that street. Uh, so we're quite familiar with every house on the street. And uh, so this client is was new to us and actually referred to us by the client who did the other house in the book, the house in Southampton. And these clients were unfamiliar with East Hampton. Pretty much they had never had a house out there. And they picked this house, which was on a great site, but really kind of the sore thumb on Lily Pond Lane. It just, you know, didn't fit in at all. Uh, but it appealed to them. They had a house in, you know, Westchester, they have a farmhouse. And they also had a house on Martha's Vineyard that was kind of farmhousey. So in their read of it, it looked like a farmhouse or that it could be a farmhouse. And that was kind of how, uh, you know, the brief they gave to me is, you know, kind of make it feel and look like a farmhouse, which, you know, in a way, I think we did a very fancy farmhouse, though, certainly, you know, not an upstate <laughs> farmhouse. Uh, and, um, it, you know, we, as I, I said, in, said in the text that, um, we kept the plan, but actually ended up rebuilding much of the house uh, in order to get taller ceilings in the, in the main room of it. Uh, but the site, you know, we, we enhanced, uh, we changed the driveway, which was the main enhancement, uh, but it had these beautiful sycamore trees that we love, and, you know, a hedge around the property as most properties in the Hamptons do. So it you know, had like good structure to it to begin with um, that, we, that we preserved. I, I love that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap this up, uh, Grant, with you. I, and it's funny, it's not funny. I think it's, it's interesting. Singapore is in your background. We're talking about a Singapore home that's in the book. Do you, obviously Singapore, is, is that sort of your main area? Do you do the majority of, of your work there? The majority of my work over the years has been what I usually say is a 12 hour to 15 hour plane ride away. <laughs> um, and so, and I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of work in China and Hong Kong. 
And its client in Singapore came to us and we jumped at the opportunity to, 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 to do it. And uh, I worked with Paul Whelan, who had a connection with the, the reference to this particular client. And, and we, as I said in the book, I'd been to Singapore previously a few times and, and the black and white houses there, uh, they're, they're beautiful. And one of uh, Frank uh, Brewer, no relationship to Gary. We, 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 we don't think anyway, but they, they, they had, uh, I, I, I like the black and white house. Anyway, let me just tell you a story here. Let me, the client is a young couple. They had uh, a, an architect who I should remain nameless design a house for them. And it was a, a titanium blob. It was totally unfurnishable on this beautiful located site on Nassim Road in, in, um, in Singapore. Nassim Road is the equivalent of Lily Bond Lane. Uh, in, 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 in Singapore. Anyway, they gave up. They came to us and we designed uh, this house and they were very uh, loving on the idea of uh, doing a traditional house, in this case, a black and white house, but we made the house much bigger than the traditional black and white house would be to, uh, to provide for their, their program, which is quite extensive. I mean, there's a 15 car garage, uh, very lavish, um, not that lavish, a lot of entertaining spaces, both inside and outside. And so he came up with a scheme for the uh, courtyard house that is basically an L shape for the, the main house. And then a, um, a guest pavilion, which closed off the courtyard and made it look like a four square house. But it's very simply organized with axes and cross axes uh, throughout the house. Very, I think very well uh, planned out. And they love that they're loving it. And, uh, and then they, they're also in the hotel business in Singapore and they knew Anushka Hempel. So she came in and did her thing on the interiors. And I think in a very complimentary way, we're very pleased with, with what she had um, proposed and had built in the end. And it's a very interesting house and the couple uh, are loving it. So they, they entertain quite well then. And the family loves it. They have a, four young children, well, they were preteens now, then, but now they're all t- teenagers and uh, it's, it's a very comfortable, very nice house. I love that. And, and one of the things that I, that I think is so wonderful about this book is it's, I, I, I consider, and I think it's, you know, by design that all of these projects, you know, this isn't, this is aspirational architecture. This is aspirational design. This is something that is, you know, it is for everyone to look at, even if it's not something that they would ever really have one day. It's something to to certainly aspire and inspire somebody with regard to um, the design itself. And I I love how different you really do. This is a this is a, a global design book. You you and I think that that was that was intentional um, in this. And the the last question I really have, and we can sort of go around the horn on this one, is because I'm curious, I think I started with this. I love books um, and I love design books in particular. And I think doing a design book is, re- is really challenging and it is difficult because you have to, you have to tell the, the, the story of design in the language of architecture. And sometimes that's not easy to convey. That being said, do you, does, this, does this inspire you to do anything different in in your next offering and how often do you do you put these do you put these books out and what is that is that a part of the firm's uh growth development marketing strategy is the the production of of books like this roger you want to start well yeah the um generally we put out a book a year uh which is not a policy but it's essentially what we do uh obviously not only on houses, but on, on our work or on a more academic subject or what have you. And this is this year's book. Um, we've put out a number of books on our, exclusively on our houses over the years. Uh, Designs for Living started a theme that we continued in this one insofar as we, the four house partners, essentially wrote the book with the help of outsiders um, and we edited it. Uh, and the next one, because uh, there will be another one, should be four or five years from now when we have 17 more houses to publish uh, or so. Or so. 
so those, those are our plans for now. Gary? Well, the, you know, talking about how the world is changing, you know, everybody is looking at Instagram and reading magazines online and on computers. And there was a question of, you know, are people really using books? But I had a client tell me recently that, you know, there's a little bit of visual overload of seeing so many um, houses and apartments and things online that there's something nice about sitting down on your sofa or on your desk and paging through a book yeah. you know, slowly. And she said, you know- There's nothing like leafing through a book. Yeah, and she said, you know, I just don't see books going away. And she did say something that I thought was rather wry because I had arranged for her to go and see uh, the house in West Chop that's in the book. And when she came back, she told me, she said, you know, the only thing that is better than seeing a Ramza house in a book is seeing a Ramza house in person. And she said, I just never really understood from the books how well planned they are and why the rooms are next to each other and why rooms are planned these views and how the big windows and, and so she's, you know, I thought it was funny. She said, you know, the only thing better than seeing a Ramsa house in a book is being there in person. Yeah, Roger, thoughts? Uh, sorry, Randy, thoughts? Yeah, uh, you know, to, to follow up a little bit with what Gary is saying, um, you know, digital versus print. And even putting the book together when, you know, the last book, Designs for Living, we all were sitting at a table and had printed photographs in front of us and, and you know, we did it that way. Whereas this time it was all online. And so we were seeing all the spreads digitally and really didn't even know how big the book was going to be. Um, so when the print version came, I called Roger, I go, Roger, this, you know, this is different than what I, what I expected. Uh, and, and it was also big and heavy, which I didn't really expect. You know, the, the uh, Designs for Living was a, a somewhat smaller book. So I, I think that e even the process, were, you know, that we had to do this time kind of made our perception uh, of the book uh, different. And I, you know, I wonder, if we ever will have digital books um, rather than print books. I think picking up what Randy said about the process, the process this time around was very different. It was less tactile. And, and, and as, as Roger said, I mean, we love le leafing through books. There's nothing better than doing that. And the whole process this time was all digitized and it was sort of a little bit detached from what we thought the final product would be. But in the end, I, every time I leaf through the book, it's just so, it, it's such a sensuous book. The images are so, you just want to jump in into the, into the rooms. Uh, I mean, they're beautiful rooms, all of the rooms. Just, it's a, a great experience leafing through this book. I mean, not to trumpet our own efforts here, but uh, I think we're all very proud of what uh, we've produced uh, in the end here. Yeah. So. It, well, and, and consciously too, we, we wanted, to really make it lush and, and do more full spreads of the photos and kind of lusher interior pictures and details. I, I think uh, we tried to focus even more on the interiors uh, in this book than we did in the last one. Yeah, and and I think you guys, I think you guys really really nailed it too. And I'm and I to your point, I think it's really interesting. You know. And and I I exist in a in a in a digital environment, right? That's my business is in a, is in a digital space. But I love books for the very reasons that you were mentioning. You know, the lush photography that and the and the detailed text that that you can it, it puts you in a space where you might not otherwise be. And the only thing I can I can equate to that is I I took one trip last year, and that was to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma of all places to, to go see what, what I think is just some absolutely amazing art deco architecture. Mm -hmm. 
and I've seen them online. I've seen, you know, the, the cathedral district, I've, I'd seen it online. I'd seen it, you know, elsewhere, but I'd never seen it in person. And it's just, it's not a place where you would go necessarily and think about great architecture, right? But it's amazing. And for the same point, you know, I don't know when I'll ever be in Singapore, but, you know, I feel like I've got that, that experience. So I love it. And I, I love what you guys uh, did with the book. And I, and I'm, I'm excited to uh, to see the next one. So I guess we'll talk again in four or five years. Maybe. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I hope sooner. It's yeah. nice talking to you. Good to talk to you, Josh. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you, Gary, Grant, Robert, and Roger. I loved our chat and look forward to doing this again. Thank you, Walker Zanger and Thermosol, for your support and your partnership. Thank you for listening, subscribing to the podcast, and the constant support, texts, and emails you send. Make sure to stay close now because we are getting very close to having live events again, and I'm looking forward to seeing your smiling faces in person again very soon. Until then, be well, and remember, take today first. Mm-hmm.